This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. All right, let's, uh, let's kind of finish this series. We started this series, Unstoppable. We're talking about this, this spiritual war that we're in, in our life, where um, there's this victory that God has for us. The victory's not always apparent. The victory's not always clear. In fact, sometimes we will navigate through life wondering if victory is even going to happen or not. Um, and so this is what we've been talking about. We kicked off the first week with Matthew 16 and how Jesus declared, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Where Jesus is declaring, hey, there is this unstoppable move, this unstoppable force. As Curtis goes to Ukraine, the church is going to get built. Nothing is going to stop that. There is opposition and there are things that will come against it, but nothing is going to stop the church from going forward. That's where we started the first week. Last week, we talked a little about there's an enemy and how we need to be alert to the enemy. That too often we navigate through life as Christians because we're, because we're comfortable, because you know, we're successful, because we have financial resources, because of whatever reasons. We navigate through our Christian life as if it's a playground. Like it's just about having fun and play. But the Bible identifies our Christian walk oftentimes as a battleground, that we're really in a war. Now, we don't approach this battle, we don't approach this war from a a standpoint of defeat or even a standpoint of fear. It's not like we need to be afraid that we're in a war. In fact, we approach it from from a perspective of victory, that we are in a battle, but we are more than conquerors. We are victorious. And so today, we're, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a little insight and context into this victory. And I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit because uh, first we talked about, you know, the church, has, how the church is, is unstoppable. The church is moving forward no matter what's going to happen to the church. Nothing's going to stop the church. Last week, we talked about the personal, I, the, the, the spiritual warfare that we're on. It's how it's us personally, the enemy wants to take us out that we need to be aware of that, that we be alert to it, that, we, that recognize that we're on a battleground, not on a playground. That's where we were last week. Today, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the nature of that victory because here's the problem, <clears throat> and I'm sure that you felt this way when we first started the series. We started talking about victory, and if, you, if, you're, if everything's going well in your life, like if you, you, know, you got a great job and your, your husband loves you or your wife loves you and your kids are doing great in school and everything's going well, it's, it's easy to just hear what I say about having victory and say, oh, yeah, sure, right? But then if you're a person who those things are not going well, where there is struggle, where there is battle, where there's challenge, it's also easy to hear that and say, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know about that, Rich. It certainly doesn't feel like it. I wish you would tell my wife that. I wish you'd tell my husband that. I wish, I wish you'd tell my boss that. And it's easy to feel that way. Like it's nice platitude rich, nice little conversation about victory, but I don't know about me. So Paul's going to give us a little insight onto this because the reality is you cannot escape opposition in this world. You can't escape it. It's going to happen. It's there. And so how do we navigate the opposition with a mindset of being more than a conqueror. How do we do that? And that's where Paul speaks to us in Romans chapter eight. That's what he says. 
What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Paul's being rhetorical. He's being theological, philosophical here, but he's being rhetorical too. Who's gonna, who possibly can do this, right? If it, it is God who justifies, so God has made you right, nobody can bring any accusation against you. Who then is the one who condemns? So if you're right with God and nobody can bring it, there's somebody out there speaking and condemning. So the enemy, we talked about the enemy last week, a little bit how the enemy is condemning us, that one of his, one of his weapons is accusation, another one is temptation, right? Who then, is, who then is he who condemns? No one. And then he goes, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is very important for us to understand in the context of victory. Paul introduces the love of Christ as he talks about victory as well. So there's a connection between the love of Christ and our victory. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, no matter what it is that comes against you, Paul is saying, no matter what it is, no matter what you're facing right now, whatever the challenges that you're facing, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Again, he introduces love again. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can, can you feel the urgency of the Apostle Paul here? Like if you were imagining him writing a letter, you could tell that he started writing, like he's just maybe casually writing to the Romans, say, hey, by the way, you know, God's love is pretty amazing. And he just gets carried away. He starts going after and writing this letter saying, listen, d- d- nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. And he just, just, just goes after it. There's a sense of urgency, Paul. Paul is desperate to help us understand the love of God because he knows that this is a source of our victory, but it's difficult for us to understand. Because in our world, we've kind of cheapened that word love. We use it in so many different ways. Like somebody a couple weeks ago was trying, a lady was trying to convince me that Diet Coke from McDonald's is better than Diet Coke anywhere else. I'm like, like she, this is how she said, I love Diet Coke from McDonald's. I'm like, isn't Diet Coke Diet Coke? See? <laughs> See, I'm telling you, it's a thing. Like, evidently, she told me there's a website out there of how Diet Coke from McDonald's is so much better than Diet Coke from anywhere else. Yeah. And this is the language she used. I love Diet Coke from McDonald's. It It may not surprise you to hear me say something like, in the same sentence, I love Jesus and I love the Dallas Cowboys. As I look at two young men with some Green Bay... Packers jerseys on right here in front of me. (laughs) And so it can be confusing when we use the word love. What does that mean? What does that mean to love? Well, Paul here has at his disposal three different words that he can use. Actually, many more. There's several words, more than three. There's actually several words in the Greek language that mean love. Paul could use any of these words, right? 
We translate it all in English to just love or affection. There's other translations that say affection. But, but the word that's oftentimes translated love is, comes from one of these three words. He could have used, for example, the word eros. That's where we get the word erotic, eros. It's a love that is based on mutual, uh, sorry, it's a love that is based on feelings. So it's, you know, it's used in the context of romantic or sensual, sensual uh, relationship kind of thing. So love that's usually emotional in nature. Like we, we use it. This is how we use it. How, in fact, this is how most of us understand love. We use it this way, like I, I fell in love. Like I saw her and I fell in love. And the, and the idea behind it is I, I had no control. I, it was just emotional. It was an emotional response. I just fell in love. Maybe, maybe you can relate to this. Your parents or somebody that you know said, we just fell out of love and now has resulted in a divorce. It's completely emotional. It's out of our control. It depends completely on how you feel. This is word eros. Paul could have used that as he's talking about the love of God. Another word he could have used is phileo. It's a love that's based on mutual benefit and, co- and commonality. This is actually a great positive word. It describes the love of God. It describes love that's often in the context of friendship. It talks about loyalty. It communicates loyalty and faithfulness. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses just a few chapters later in Romans 12 to say how the church, how people in the church should love each other. This is brotherly kind of love. This kind of love also is somewhat transactional in nature or can be transactional in nature, very, very conditional. Like, I love you. I love you because you do these things that make me love you. And then, or you love me because I do these things. And so should you stop doing X, Y, and Z, then maybe I won't love you anymore. That's sort of this idea behind filial love. Another word for love in the New Testament is agape. And this is a love that is selfless sacrificial and unconditional it's a love that's not based on conditions no expiration date it's a love that has no list of requirements it's a love that loves even when you don't get anything in return you get that it's a love that loves even when you don't get anything in return and guess which one the apostle paul is using in this context he's using the word agape love It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 3.16 when he talks about how God loved the world, how he loved all of humanity. He so loved humanity. This is unconditional, selfless, sacrificial kind of love. Now, the problem for us is not that God doesn't love us. In fact, I think we can have this mental ascent where we will all agree, yeah, yeah, of course, God loves us. We'll feel that way, Right? But our problem is that we really don't believe it. We really don't accept it. We don't receive it into our life. And because we don't receive it into our life, then it doesn't really change us. We believe God, as a theory, God loves us. But we don't really live it out. We don't really practice it, right? And so, in part, the reason why is most of us have never really experienced that kind of love here on earth. You know, what does agape love look like here on earth? I'm not trying to be like a Debbie Downer or anything, but if you were to ask yourself the question, why does this person love me? Like, why does this other person that's in my life love me, whether it's your parents or whether it's your, your, your spouse or your children? Why, why do they love me? Well, 
oftentimes when they answer that question, they answer with because. Well, because of this. Now, if you don't, you don't, if you don't believe that, I mean, you just need to go to Hallmark, right? Hallmark store and get any card that has something to do with romantic, romantic relationships. And on the cover, it'll be some kind of nice little message of, of I love you, whatever, you know, mushy kind of message on the front. When you open it up, almost instantly it's because, and it gives you the reason why, the list of why it is that I love you. It's conditional. It's, it's, it's transactional in nature. And that's really what most of us are familiar with, right? That's kind of a lot of pressure on, on us for that. And there's a lot of insecurity to this type of love because what if the because stops? Like when I first met Christy, she, she, she's right here. She can vouch for it. 35 years, 34 years ago, 33 years ago. I had a full... <laughs> We've been married 32, so we're in between 33 and 34. Um, I had this full head of black hair, okay? And what if Christy said, man, I love him. I love his black hair. And, and had a full head, like, it was like down to here, you know? It's kind of gone back somewhere, you know? I don't know what's happening. Would love stop? I mean, there's a lot of pressure to this idea of this conditional kind of love. If, if you know, because beauty fades, or, or maybe because you're, you know, I love you, I love you, you're so funny. And then you get married and you realize, man, you're not that funny at all. You're just annoying <laughs> because I'm tired of hearing the same joke over and over and over again, right? So what happens when the because changes? Does love change? And so what we find as we study the love of God is that love in its purest form has no because. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. And here's the problem with us is that that's hard for us to accept. It really is. We, we just have a hard time accepting this unconditional kind of love. And some of you really need to hear this because that's what you grew up with. You grew up with a conditional kind of relationship with God. You were taught, maybe in church, that if you will just do this, this, and that, then God will love you more. If you'll stop doing this, that, and that, then maybe God will love you more. But you need to hear this. This is level ground. I mean, you could come. Your past could be sorted. Your past could be perverted. I mean, it could be a terrible life that you've lived. And then you, or you could be a person who has, you know, just been kind and good all your life and God looks at both of you and he doesn't prefer one over the other. He doesn't love one more than he loves the other. And yet that's the mentality that we are often in because we have this transactional idea of love. That the way I can truly love somebody, the way somebody could truly love me is if, if I just simply, if I just simply do more for them. That's not the love that Paul is talking about here. And so if you need a because to kind of explain God's love, then maybe God loves you because, well, he loves you. (laughs) Is that a good enough? I know that leaves you wanting. (laughs) I know it's like, okay, you didn't really answer the question, Rich. Why does God love me? He just loves you. Here's how Paul kind of uh, talks about it a little bit. 
especially when he's talking about, Paul knows this. See, Paul understands this love, and he, he knows that it's the key to our victory in life. He knows that. So this is how Paul says it in Romans 8, 31. He says, uh, what then shall we say in response to this? This kind of love, this love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Like, just, It's like Paul saying, just go ahead, try. Come up with a list of who could possibly be against you. Now, if I ask you that question, who, who's against you? I bet you you can come up with a list. Like, maybe your spouse is on the list. <laughs> your boss. Or maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. And what Paul's trying to tell us is even though those things apparently seem like they're against you, that in this life, you can still live victoriously. You can still be more than a conqueror. Verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, Paul's kind of comparing um, God with Abraham here, or Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed and was saved, and that was a demonstration of Abraham's loyalty to God, love for God. In the same way, God did not spare his own son, but gave him, gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Now, remember that Romans is kind of like a theological document. Paul is, he's presenting a case for the love of God and for everything that's happened when it comes to Christianity. And uh, one of the things that he's doing uh, right here in this particular passage, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Like he says, okay, if God would not spare his own son, I mean, if he's willing to give his own son then don't you think he's going to help you with your financial world? I mean, don't you think he's going to help you with your marriage? Don't you think he's going to help you with all these other things? It's this argument from the greater to the lesser. This is a show that I watch, that I've watched, I haven't seen in a while. Watch on TV, it's like Velocity Channel. You know, I watch too much Motor Trend and Velocity Channel. It's, yeah, it's an addiction, I guess. Um, Anyway, uh, there's a show called What's My Car Worth? And it's pretty, I like it. I like watching because I like seeing these old cars that they bring through, you know. And, and it's, what it is, it's a show that it's um, these two guys that are going to evaluate a vehicle before it goes to auction. And so they bring it to these two guys, and, and it's an owner will bring their vehicle. And generally, it's some really classic car, pretty cool vehicle, you know. They'll bring it to these two guys, and then they, they give a valuation. And I love watching because I love how these owners, every owner thinks their car is worth 100 times more than what the guy says it's worth. You know, they're kind of disappointed, a little bit, you know, some of them get very, really offended at it, you know. But, um, but they, they evaluate these cars, and there's a lot, a lot of criteria. One of the criteria is authenticity. You know, is this really what it says, what it looks like on the outside, you know? Numbers matching kind of stuff, you know. Uh, collectability, you know, is, does, does anybody want it? Is it something that's worth collecting, you know? Sometimes it, the actual condition of the vehicle, and what I've been surprised at is sometimes the actual condition of the vehicle doesn't even matter because it's so collectible, Right? But here's the bottom line with, that, with their show and the valuation of those vehicles. The bottom line is, will anybody pay for it? And what will they pay for it? Like, it can be collectible, it can have all these things, but, but in the moment, in the time, how much are they willing to pay for that vehicle? That's really what determines the value. And so oftentimes, it's a very collectible vehicle, very nice vehicle. Maybe 10 years ago, it would have been even better. But right now, this is what people are willing to pay for it, and that makes the value of that vehicle. And you can't argue against that, right? Because 
if that's all they'll pay for, that's all they'll pay for it. And that becomes the value of that vehicle. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I when God himself would give his own son? I mean, how does God value his own? I mean, is there anything more precious to God than his own son? I mean, me as an earthly father, there's nothing more precious to me than my own children. And I can't even imagine how God the father is towards his own son. And he was willing to give his own son. What does that say about your worth, about your value? God loves you. Paul goes on. He says, who, can, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies is God who has made us right with him. Therefore, nobody can bring a charge against us. God made us right. Satan in Revelation 12.10 is called the accuser. He's constantly accusing. You need to hear Some of you in this room right now, the enemy has been accusing you. I mean, you are in the fight of your life right now. He's telling you all kinds of stuff. He's telling you you're not worth it. He's telling you you've messed up way too much. There's no way that God will ever accept you. She will never come back to you. He will never come back to you. You'll never, ever be able to break that habit. That's the work of the enemy. He's the accuser. He's doing it right now in many of your minds. There's a war battle raging in your mind. And so Paul says, verse 34, who is he that condemns? It's the enemy who's condemning. On the other hand, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. First John kind of helps us with this word of this word interceding. He says, uh, "We have one who speaks, talking about Jesus. We have one who speaks with the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know what John's saying here? That Jesus is your defense attorney. I've never had. I've only had one time ever need for a defense attorney. Don't worry, it wasn't like any kind of criminal thing." So if you're worried about that, I don't know, these guys over here, though, I mean, they, might have, they might have needed it more often than I have, but sorry, guys. <laughs> um, <clears throat> don't worry. There's some of you in this room that you've, yeah, anyway, anyways, we're not going to go there. But I've only, I've only ever needed a defense attorney one time. I was doing this tax thing, and we, we won, right? I was really glad I had a defense attorney, though, because honestly, uh, I was confused and lost, and I had no idea what was going on. And I had somebody who was with me that exact, knew exactly. So I want, to, I want you to imagine yourself in a courtroom. I want, you, I want you to imagine yourself sitting at the defendant's desk. The judge walks into the courtroom, who is God. The judge walks into the courtroom. Everybody, everybody stands to their feet. The judge is carrying this huge file. And it's got rich green stamped on the outside of it. And it's big. And he walks into the courtroom and he goes up to his, his big desk and he plops the thing down on the desk and you're like, oh man. And even God's like, man, that is heavy, you know? So like, you're like, okay, I've, I'm done. I'm done. Because it's all the stuff I've ever done. And here's the thing, I've already pled guilty to it. And then it's time to start reading the charges. You know how it is. That's not me, I don't think. <laughs> Some start reading the charges, and, um, and you, know, you know that everything that they're going to read, you've done. You know you're guilty of. 
And so you stand as they start reading the charges and before God starts reading the charges, next thing you know, your defense attorney, Jesus, stands next to you. And God starts reading the charges and this is what he says. On the charges of losing your temper and punching a hole in the wall, I find you guilty and this is your punishment. And just at that moment, Jesus speaks up, uh, your honor, I paid that. On the charge of the abortion that you had, you're guilty, and Jesus speaks up, I pay for that one too. On the charges of cheating on a test, Jesus speaks up, I pay for that. On charges of gossiping in line, Jesus speaks up, I pay for that. On the charges of lust and greed, I paid for that one. Each and every time, anything and everything you've possibly ever done, Jesus paid the price for it. It's done. This is why we have verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, if he's paid it, if he's your defense attorney, then who can possibly separate you from the love of Christ? He goes on, verse, he kind of gives us a list, a few examples. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying that your victory is not conditional upon your circumstances. That's how we operate. I'm victorious as long as everything is going good in my family. I'm, a more, I'm more than a conqueror as long as I've got enough money in the bank account. I'm triumphant as long as, long as my, my marriage is in good order and my kids are in good shape. And Paul's saying here, look, look, I don't care what is coming against you, whatever battle you're facing, whatever war you're in the middle of, whatever challenges you're in the middle of, you are still more than a conqueror. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this, in this passage. No matter what comes against you, point I want to make today is that there's a connection between the love of Christ and your victory. Verse 37 is a key passage in this, in this passage. It says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Some of you are in the fight of your life right now. You're fighting for your marriage. You're fighting for your kids. You're fighting for your financial future. You're fighting for, for just you know, a sense of stability and joy in your life. That's where you are. And Jesus promises us, Paul promises that we are more than conquerors through him who loves. There's something about this, this passage up here. That, there's something about this verse that I don't like. It's actually the first time I've ever done. I like stand here in the pulpit and say, there's a scripture verse that I don't like. Just hear me out. He says here, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice how it's in a past tense? It's like, wait a minute. Like, if you were talking to my wife, and she was like, oh, Rich, my husband, I loved him. I'm like, I'd be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean, loved him? Like, that's past tense. 
you, you know, change that back to the future tense, you know, future continuous kind of thing, you know? It doesn't make any sense to me, and yet it does make sense because in the Greek, that's actually a, a specific verse t- verb tense. It's an aorist tense participle that basically is pointing to, not to a general past, you know, past tense, kind of not general, but specific. A specific moment in time. So there was a specific moment in time in which God fully and finally loved us. That's what he's saying there in this verse. What Paul is pointing to specifically is the cross. That we are more than conquerors. We will win the war. The battles that you are facing, you will overcome. The victory has already been won at the cross. That's what he's saying every single one of us. There's an interesting thing about the cross. You think about it. Jesus, there's a seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. The very last one that he says is, it is finished. Remember? Tetelestai in the, in the Greek. Tetelestai. It is finished. That's how it's translated. It is finished. Now, when you hear it in English, it's kind of like, the, 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 the tone is kind of like, yeah, it's done. That's, that's the idea you kind of get from that, you know? Like, It's finished. It's like what a, a head coach says to an assistant coach when they lose the game in the last few seconds of the, of the game. It's done. It's over. But that's really not what Paul is saying. I mean, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is using that word. That word tetelestai actually has a very powerful significance. It's a word that would be used in combat, actually, when two armies would be facing each other. There would be a vicious fight going on, a battle going on between the two armies, and they're fighting I mean, this is life and death kind of combat, sword, hand, hand-to-hand combat, sword fighting. That's going on. And when finally, at the very end, when the last person surrenders, the commander of the winning army stands on a hill or stands on a building or stands on something high, puts his sword up in the air, and he says, Tetelestai! Victory! That's what that word means. Not, it is finished. Like, oh, I give up. It's victory has been won. And so Jesus on the cross, he wasn't just declaring over you his love. He was declaring over you victory. Now, let's all stand. We're going to end here with a song, but I get it. I get it. (laughs) Rich, a lot of great platitude here. (laughs) A lot of nice words. Yes, I know what the Bible says, but how is my marriage going to get restored? How is all, all these, you know, I don't, I, I don't have the answers. Paul's not trying to, answer, try to answer how your marriage is going to get restored. He's not trying to answer how you're going to be financially stable. He's not trying to answer how you're going to, you know, succeed in your job. Paul's just trying to tell you, as you're going through this life, which is a battleground, not a playground, this is how you can live as a conqueror, good, good or bad. Our, our lives don't waver because of circumstances if we're followers of Jesus Christ. He loves us. We're going to sing that song, song that we sang. Uh, how's the word? What's the song the title again? Re- Reckless Love. I forgot the title song, Reckless Love. We're going to sing the song, Reckless Love, where it talks about how God's love, there's nothing that can hold back God's love. So here's what I want to ask you to do. As we sing that song, sing it as a prayer. Because what I'm hoping for 
out of this whole series is that you would walk away not with, like, I have a list of what, the ways that I'm not going to ever face challenges in my life. That's not the goal. But you walk away with a conviction that no matter what comes my way, I can still be more than a conqueror. No matter what happens in my life, I could be victorious. No matter what results happen out of the dysfunction between my wife and I, I can still be more.